I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome to another episode of For Your Ears Only, Optimism Vaccine's premier James Bond podcast. Uh, my name is Jack Eason. I'm joined by Jake Trapilla. Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Jack. How are you? I'm doing very well. Very excited to be here. We are on to episode 0011 and we're going to be discussing The Spy Who Loved Me today, which is going to be... <coughs> An interesting project to discuss because we've kind of hit a, a crossroad at the James Bond franchise. Um, I suppose because the film prior to this, The Man with the Golden Gun, was maybe the first James Bond movie to really miss fire at the box office. Uh, it wasn't a flop by any means, but didn't didn't make the same kind of money they were used to making. And I called into question whether, you know, could Roger Moore cut it as James Bond? So there's a lot riding on this film, his third outing as James Bond. And uh, I think I don't, I don't think it's a... A spoiler or getting ahead of ourselves say i think i think he does really well here this film course corrects pretty nicely i would say but, yeah legend has it that at the premiere of this film the end of the pre-title sequence earned a standing ovation from the audience so within 10 minutes audiences rest assured that they were in good hands in the world of james bond again Nice. I, yeah. I think that's that's pretty fair because uh, I'll, I'll nail my colors to the mask right off. This this is a great Bond film. This is one of the best Hell that yeah. I've seen thus far. Um, yeah. So this yeah, is you, a, this is often like cri- the critical consensus here is that this is often Roger Moore's best film. Uh, now it's not my personal favorite Roger Moore film. We'll get to that one uh, soon. But uh, this is, I think, it's definitely one of his best films. It's my second favorite and, yeah, easily one of the best and, and most purely entertaining in the series. Really entertaining, yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that struck me about this movie, actually, is it, we're, we're, the Bond films are getting a little bit longer at this point. They're starting to push over the two-hour mark, which is, you know, not so common in the earlier films. Or, you know, they'd hover a little <laughs> bit or a little bit shorter than that. But yeah. um, I, I, I ended up having to... to grab something uh, while I was watching this and I paused the film um, to go do that and I realized I was 30 minutes in and I had like I just felt like I just sat down so that's a pretty good indication that this was um, this wow. film travels pretty well so we, we, we open with uh, our pre-credit sequence which is uh, pretty solid by uh, actually pretty great um, yeah. which uh, ends with, with we, I, I don't know we, we, who are we introduced to because obviously we have James Bond in his, his cabin but do we also have Agent Triple X introduced we do and that's that's actually before that we have this is the second film directed by Lewis Gilbert uh, he previously did You Only Live Twice uh, that film opens with a space shuttle being hijacked uh, mid-flight this uh, film opens with a submarine being hijacked mid-operation so it's uh, one of his famous of three openings where he has one large vehicle engulfing another vehicle uh, and that it generally kicks off the mission that this uh, this you know this vessel has gone missing in this case it has nuclear arms on it and it must be found before uh, something bad happens um, but yeah then we uh, we do get introduced to agent triple X but uh, in what I think is one of the many clever reversals of the series we see this man and woman in bed together. They're a pair of uh, Russian agents, although we don't know their agents yet because the phone rings asking for Agent Triple X. The man answers the phone, and then he passes it to the woman, who we reveal is the secret agent of this story. Um, so, yeah, we're introduced to Triple uh, X, played by Barbara Bach. Um, any, uh, any thoughts on Triple X? Jack? Uh, yeah, a really, really great opening. I, like, I really like the way they do play with that ambiguity, and they tease it out for a while that there's that expectation we've got maybe another... You know, um, oh, what's his name from From Russia with Love? Red. Oh, Red Grant. Red, yeah, Red Grant, another Russian agent, a kind of bulky, burly guy. But no, it's passes the phone, and we have we have a female Russian operative this time. Um, but yeah, it's so we we 
kind of she, we set that up, and I think we'll, we'll discuss more about her inter interactions with Bond later on, which I think is really one of the strong points of this film. That yeah. this, this film has a much richer tapestry of characters than a lot of the other ones, on top of really nailing the action sequences. And I do really want to focus on what really kind of caught me up in this is they have their discussion to about having a new mission. It cuts to James Bond, who's in a chalet with a lady, because that's how you, how you introduce James Bond. So Bond leaves there. They're in the Alps somewhere. They go skiing. So Bond skis away, and uh, who who should be there but a couple of Russian agents are, have been set to, to capture Bond or kill him uh, by chasing him on skis. And one of those agents is the man that we just saw with Agent Triple X. Um... And they chase each other, and Bond uh, dispatches one of them before performing a phenomenal stunt yeah. uh, within the film. And it's a, basically a, a huge ski jump, base jump, uh, it goes off off the edge of a cliff, and it's shot in this really long shot, obviously because it's a stunt man. Because Roger Moore is fifty years old, and he's not jumping <laughs> off cliffs. I don't think he did, and I'm not sure he did that at any point in his uh, life. Because no. it's not a wise thing to do if you value your safety. But luckily, the Bond franchise is able to find people who do not value their safety, or at least are willing to put a price tag of about thirty thousand pounds sterling. I believe was what the stunt man was was paid for this. But it is an incredible shot because he just skis off the edge of this cliff and it's the the camera perspective is is wonderful because it masks with all of the snow on the mountains and this the the overcast horizon of the sky and and snow everywhere you have no idea of how big a jump it is whether it's really high or really short and kind of all of the perspective is flattened in the shot and he just seems to hang in the air forever yeah uh, and it's it's really kind of crazy how how long he just sort of goes there without even uh, like I think yeah. you, you want to get your parachute out immediately. I can't I can't think of any uh, mountains. That's what you're thinking. It's like is, is, is this? Yeah, is there something else? Because that was I think it's like okay, he's because what I love about this stunt is that you you know you know in your head you you read the stunt. Okay, it's a man going off a cliff on a ski and he's going to pop his parachute and yeah, okay, we've seen similar in the Bond films already uh, with ski chases and so on. But he goes off the cliff and just floats just like arcing away. It's like a wily e. coyote just flying out over the edge and there's no parachute and there's still no parachute and you're like start counting the seconds and you're just thinking like is did, did they change the stunt? Is or you know what? What did they do? This is like a, a weird alteration of reality. And then finally, the parachute pops, and it's of course a giant Union Jack uh, parachute. Because because why would it not be in this in this franchise? But it's uh, to me, I think actually just a phenomenal such stunt set piece. And I have to say, like I'm I'm thinking recently we had some like Mission Impossible Fallout, which did that big Halo jump sequence yeah. that everyone very critically lauded. I gotta admit, didn't read great on the screen to me at all. Very technically difficult to do, but personally I felt it was a little bit too jumbled and stagey. And like, while I appreciate them actually doing it in real life, I don't think there's any cinematically, there's no real distinction between it and if they had done it completely with CG. It looks the exact same to me when it's the way they put it together on the screen. Yeah, Um, it's just so over-processed in post-production and I think it's also that's because it's like three shots that are digitally stitched together with uh, Cruz yeah. like going out of the plane and then his free fall and landing, um, yeah. So, it, so like it's it's a very it's it's something that was very technically difficult. But honestly, I don't think it reads that well. Like if I talk about Mission Impossible Fallout, I think like the best action sequence of the whole film is that rooftop chase, which mm-hmm. is probably from a stunt perspective one of the most boring elements. But it's the be- it reads best cinematically as fast and frantic and physical. Yeah, and this this stunt is kind of the opposite. It's not fast and frantic or physical, but with the long shot and the the way that it just hangs out there, you just really get the sense of this enormity of danger, of this just insane thing, because you know there's no special effect there. Yeah. Um, and maybe they slowed the footage a little bit to keep him in the air a little longer, but you, this is a dude just went off a cliff. And there's, what's, what is, I think is the real masterstroke is uh, the use, or rather lack of use, of music, because up yes. until that parachute is deployed, it is just dead silent. You can only hear the ambient sounds of just the the air up in the mountains and then yeah once the parachute pops the james bond theme roars back to life and it's it's really like just sort of the the film's thesis statement like hey hey james bond 
is back and he's better than ever and and uh and yeah, it's it's yeah, magnificent. It, it's one it of the it feels best like in a the rejuvenation. Series. Yeah, absolutely. I like I think stunt wise, this is maybe maybe the best stunt I've seen yet in the franchise, honestly. I can't and certainly maybe the best presented. And I think yeah. it comes back to Lewis Lewis Gilbert as director. Uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, the previous film he made. You only live twice. I really think it's a really strong film, and yeah. part of the reason I really like it is because the action sequences are really tight and punchy and creative. He really has a real grasp of where to put things, you know, camera wise to get uh, kind of a a physical element to it. Now, Roger Moore is no Sean Connery. He can't really live it up in the action sequences the way that Connery could. But he he has this finesse and this, you know, this sequence really reminds me, man, it's great to have this guy back. As much as he loves having large vehicles ingest smaller vehicles as part (laughs) of his plot. I don't know what part of his childhood informed that fascination. But other than that, he really... Yeah, yeah, he's a director that certainly fables spectre, spectacle over uh, everything else. But luckily, yes. he's really good at spectacle. So he is carries really his own good. Fire. So absolutely, that that sets us in motion, and we swing right into our title sequence and our main theme, which is you got it queued up. There we go. Uh. Magnificent. It's about as iconic as it gets in the franchise. No, they didn't call it the spy who loved me. Who cares? But uh, the line's in there. Luckily, yeah, she does say it. Like at no point in all time high does Rita Coolidge say the word octopusy. But uh, she does manage to to uh, maybe a little awkwardly wedge. Nobody does it, or the spy who loved me in the lyrics. So good. So yes, we have Carly Simon singing it out. And we have, I think, honestly, probably the most sexually explicit or sexually suggestive theme yeah. sequence yet. It's a very risque by standards, and there's a bunch of women gymnasts like gyrating and like spinning. It's it's a very uh, it it feels a little bit more uh, upfront than previous iterations, but it really I think lays out that this is almost like a rebirth. This is yeah. new James Bond. And is kind of, and I think we would say is is this is where the franchise switches over to Roger Moore proper. I think he escaped. I'm not. Oh, at no point absolutely. in this movie, I'm at no point in this movie, I'm going like, oh, I wish Sean Connery had done this. Like this, it's not there at all. Yeah, no, Roger Moore. I mean, he he's, his performances are a little iffy in uh, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, because he's still he's still sort of figuring out his own take on the character, but. Yeah, it's amazing how, like, fully formed he appears in this film, and it's like, you know what, let's just have a good time, and, you know, he's, he's kind of like a, he's kind of like a friendly uncle in the film, <laughs> he's got a lot of great little one-liners, um, Your friendly murderous uncle. Your friendly murderous uncle, yes, as we see there's a large, rather large body count in this film. Um, Significant, also, definitely. Also, probably a response to the man with the golden gun, where his only kill was Scaramanga, the titular man with the golden gun. The strangely bloodless film that was yeah, uh, Man with the Golden Gun. Just such a yeah, a misfire, and it's great to it's great to have Bond back in action. I love this theme song. It's uh, if not my favorite, I uh, top three, I would say for sure. Um, yeah, it's great. It's great, and it works well just on its own too. A lot of the songs don't work unless they're in the movie, but uh, this one I could listen to any day of the week. Yeah, I think I think this oh. one did well in the charts too, as I recall. But um. But yeah, it's this. This is, and I feel again, Lewis Gilbert, and I don't know how much of the divided out between production to the to you know various to the writers, etc. But I read in place that Lewis Gilbert was actually central in recalibrating the series and feeling that Roger Moore wasn't being that if the, if Roger Moore was going to be Bond, then the movies needed to change tone a little bit, and they hadn't sufficiently done that with Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. They needed to become a little bit more. Camp, yeah, a little, uh, just a little bit more humor driven, because because Roger Moore is really like he's really like honestly he would have slayed in a Naked Gun movie. Oh, um, absolutely, because he he has that he he has the 
classic thespian airs, but I mean, he just cocks the eyebrow and says the darndest thing, and it's it it works, and they really they play into that. They lean very heavily into that from here on out. Yeah. He's got a lot of great little uh, knowing looks, too, uh, when somebody does something. Uh, just back to the song real quick. This song was nominated for an Oscar, uh, as well as the score from Marvin Hamlish was also nominated. Um, and then it charted uh, seventh, was the highest on the UK chart, and then second on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. So, yeah, this is uh, you know, a mark of a great song. I don't think Lulu... Man with the Golden Gun song did anything, but yeah, this is a this is an all this is a classic. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure this has been used in other movies since. Actually, I definitely. <laughs> so yeah, um, so okay, so let's let's swing back to to the story. Get Although actually, just before that, oh, before sure. that, I just want to say because Agent Triple X, we didn't really comment on how. Firstly, haha, Agent Triple X, genius. Yeah. Uh, but secondly, does that mean Vin Diesel is a later iteration of this character? Uh, oh god! You know, like, and that's that's uh, that's my first thought on this is that clearly Vin Diesel was the next Triple X, and then Ice Cube, and of course, then Vin Diesel took back the mantle. Um, so there you go. A lot of people might not know that, but State of the Nation is a sequel to a James Bond film for sure, just on Monster Energy drinks. Yeah, uh, and it's weird because like that Triple X, the film opens with basically a James Bond analog getting killed. As if it's to say James Bond is dead. This is the new secret agent you're going to want to be clamoring for, which is like a, a Romstein head-banging, Red Bull-swilling sports fiend. But uh, that quickly fell out of fashion, and Bond still continues to kick Vin Diesel's ass at the box office to this day. But, yes, uh, indeed. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think it's just unfortunate that Triple X is Vin Diesel's name as well as uh, Anya Asimov is her, yes, her yes. real name in the film. But, a silly uh, overlap, yeah. for sure. Anyways, yeah, we're introduced after this to our villain, uh, Carl Stromberg, played by Kurd Jurgens. Uh, he's got a really uh, pretty cool underwater base that looks like a giant spider walking on water when it rises up from the surface. Um, he uh, is basically commissioned... Uh, I don't know what it uh, what it is. Oh no, he's stolen like heat signature traffic tracking from this doctor and professor, which is used to uh, track down the submarines carrying the nuclear arms, so that he can then deploy his giant ship to engulf those and capture the crew on board. So um, yeah, it's a yeah. very convoluted plan that, and it turns out he's just doing this to steal nuclear weapons so he's he just, can launch yeah. them. He wants um, to launch them, and should we reveal his what his ultimate goal is? I, mean, I, I think it's safe to yeah. do so. <laughs> well, he has a. I don't know if you noticed, but he has webbed fingers, which I don't know if he was born that way or if he surgically had them altered. But he has a real fascination with living under the sea. So his goal is to, with these stolen nuclear missiles, uh, use them on the world while he and his uh, crew of, uh, I'm just going to call them people, uh, recreate civilization underneath the ocean with this city that he has built. It's insane. <laughs> He's like a, yeah, like a blue well, we talk about yeah, yeah, we'll talk. We, we what we talk about maybe you know they're being like really getting back to like the thoroughbreds of Bond. This really cements for Roger Moore era the the outlandish uh, evil pension or like evil masterminds. I mean, everything is a is a a plan to destroy the entire world and strangely to repopulate. This will come back again in the next film. Actually, weirdly enough, uh, yeah. very similar plot beats to that front. Yeah, so um, Bond is uh, given the mission, uh, so he begins his investigation. And to counter Bond's investigation, Stromberg uh, deploys two henchmen. Uh, one is a diminutive, bald guy named Sandor, who is actually dispatched with rather quickly by Bond, which I think is pretty funny. And then he also introduces uh, how appropriate that the fish villain has a villain or a henchman named Jaws, played by the great, late, great Richard Keel. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on Jaws, Jack? Jaws has always been kind of like the... I mean, he's he's definitely... <clears throat> if you're compiling a list of the greatest villains, Jaws has to be right up at the top. If nothing else, because I think for a lot of people my age and people who grew up with Bond films, Jaws was like the best Bond villain or one of the coolest Bond villains. Absolutely. Uh, just because he's, he's huge. I mean, 
it, the actor is actually genuinely seven foot nine or something. I don't know. He's very, very tall. Uh, and then he has his big metal teeth and he's seemingly indestructible and he bites people. Weirdly bloody in this film, actually, the way that he, as super strong as he is, he just, he like bites people on the neck with his horrific steel fangs. It's a kind of a grotesque element. And yeah. we're, we're strangely grotesque within a film that to a large degree has this kind of funny kind of lightness to it but yeah, yeah jaws is is great and he does he does have his his weird um his co co cohort who as you say <laughs> basically in, in a very strange I, the physics of this film are a little strange who who dies by falling off a building and he's holding on to bond's tie and bond apparently is able to stand even though this other guy is he's diminutive but he's big he's like a big yeah, burly he's, guy he's actually he's like a pretty very professional wrestler for exactly. god's sake um short but not not lightweight and um, we're not talking a knickknack surrogate here <laughs> and somehow he just he can't he can't hold on to bond's tie but bond is able to stand upright at the edge of the building with him until the guy slips off uh it was a bit, a bit of a strange setup there but uh jaws of course uh, without, I suppose we we could mention Jaws actually survives this entire ordeal. So popular was he, um, and I think again, I don't know if this was Gilbert again who foresaw this. Um, I feel I like I'm just praising him constantly, but that he foresaw that the villain Jaws would be so popular that maybe it would be wise not to not to get rid of him. Yeah, I don't know if um, if it was in test screenings that they reshot a scene of uh, Jaws swimming, spoiler alert, swimming away, away from Stromberg's exploding lair. But yeah, apparently, aside from the opening Union Jack parachute, uh, apparently Jaws swimming away also got one of the biggest reactions in the film because audiences really grew to like this uh, this menacing villain. Um, because he's kind of like uh, he's kind of like almost like a James Bond type character himself. He's always dressed in a sharp suit, and he you know he gets a lot of pain thrown his way, but he just kind of brushes himself off and keeps moving forward with this massive implacability that he's built with. And I think I think also uh, as the James Bond films have been known to uh, pilfer from what's popular in pop culture, uh, Spielberg's Jaws came out in two years before and. Uh, so, you know, what better to have a, a actual, in that film, basically kind of redefine the summer movie-going experience as we know it. So, what better to have a villain named Jaws and kind of capitalize on that success? So, I think that was just a little a little additional detail that allowed audiences to endear themselves to him. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, anyways, the plot kind of kind of is really a, really a it, it goes all over the place. This is like one of the many bonds that uh, just traverses several countries. Uh, Bond goes to Egypt where he meets Triple X and uh, he also encounters Jaws at the pyramids. I think this is a very well done sequence where they're trying to find um, one of the doctors who helped build this uh, heat seeking technology and he's being chased through the pyramids by Jaws. And they're at this like very, very intricately done sound and light show where this, the lights are fading in and out. Um, causing Jaws to appear and disappear behind the pyramids, and I think it's a kind of a very creepy, well done sequence. How do you feel? How do you feel about it? Yeah, it's it's an interesting cat and mouse sequence, and it's it's built from as far as I'm aware, that's a real light show thing that still plays. Yeah. So, but but yeah, I, th I think it really it it works well as kind of a, a chase sequence and folds in Bond, Jaws, and then of course our Agent Triple X as well. So we have our, our three competing factions. And we're not entirely sure how Triple X will fit in with all of this. Um, and of course, uh, Jaws makes it, finds the guy first and kills him. So yeah. we have, uh, so, so we have our little intrigue. Um, and then Triple X and her henchmen, her two random henchmen, beset James Bond and have a fight. So Bond and Triple X don't really have too much of an encounter at this point they then meet up later on with another contact which does seem like a see there, there seems to be a very kind of it feels plot heavy but honestly most of these details aren't very important to how things will go uh like you say glow popping it almost feels like this film is kind of starts moving to different places just because they can afford to right um but I'm not going to complain too much. It's kind of nice. They get some good good mileage out of their, their glow popping. And Egypt has some... They have some interesting elements here. Um, yeah. Triple uh, X and Bond, they hop into Jaws' uh, truck. Or his van, rather. His and little they, 
jalopy thing. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, the, he, there's some odd physical comedy to this. And again, I feel like we talk about this recalibration of the franchise. Jaws is it, not so much here as, as in the next film. And in, in, uh, we'll talk about that later in, in the next episode with them. Um, with Moonraker, where Jaws really becomes kind of a foil for a lot of broad comedy. In this right. film, they just kind of gently prod to the comedy in that he, he is driving around in, like, a tiny van, and he's a huge guy, and then he practically destroys the van while, tra- like, literally Jaws gets in a fit, like, Bond has a fist fight with Jaws and manages to foil him, not by being stronger than him, but by making him accidentally collapse a building around him and then Bond and Triple X get in a van and it's like Jaws has a fist fight with the van to yeah. match to match their strengths which is kind of a fun throw and it's like it's like the bonus stage of Street Fighter 2 for all those who grew up in <laughs> arcades where you smash the car to bits for extra points it's, it's pretty much playing that out that Jaws just tears a whole vehicle nearly apart before they manage to escape and it's also here where we really start to build up the rapport the all important rapport between Bond and Triple X as characters which I, I guess brings us into talking about Barbara Bach and her playing of Triple X which is Bach was cast late in the film. I believe she she was actually just did a general audition to just be in the film. She didn't realize like she didn't consider at the time that she was going to get the main female lead. Um, I honestly I'm I'm a little torn this because I don't think I don't think she's great as Triple X, but I think Triple X is great with Bond. That there's they have these really great rapport and. Uh, Discussions, and I think it's really fascinating, fun point that while we may complain about the Bond films not being particularly progressive or whatever, that uh, this Russian female agent really is, you know, kind of very capable and outwits Bond on several occasions. And we have these fun details where, you know, they one up each other on weird, on trivia and who read the latest dossier to have the best information. I think yeah. it really works very well. So while I'm maybe not as enamored in box performance, which, I know, to be fair, there's always a question of how much can you really do with these characters, but it works well enough, and I think it's really charming the way that, within the context of the overall film and within the, the film's context, within the overall franchise, it's just really refreshing to have this female agent who's so well-matched to Bond and really presented as kind of his equal, but from the, the behind-the-iron-curtain yeah, that's you hit the nail on the head. I think I think she's you know performance aside. Uh, I think I think Triple uh, X is a very well written character aside from her name. Um, she does <laughs> does well to match Bond and his wits, and it's always just yeah this the the sort of kind of corporate gamesmanship they have because we we also meet in this film. There's the General Gogol, who's essentially the Russian M. Uh, and they, the, to, you know, recover these nuclear arms, the, you know, the Russian office has to work together with MI6, the KGB has to work with MI6. So yeah, it becomes a matter of, uh, who's trying to impress whose superiors more. Um, so yeah, I think, I think Bach is, you know, she makes a for, formidable opponent for James Bond is sort of, you know, is their witty repartees go. And I think the, the van sequence with Jaws destroying the van as they're trying to drive away, uh, because uh, Bach is driving the car, or she's at least struggling to get it started, and Bond is just sitting in the driver or in the passenger seat with his arms folded, making quips the entire time. And I think that is like the perfect distillation of Roger Moore. Like just even in the face of danger, he's got a just a very positive attitude. He's, he can make light of any <laughs> situation, even though they're. Uh, if if Jaws for some reason is not reaching into the van and pulling them out, he's just <laughs> tearing apart more and more of the van. So yeah, it doesn't uh, make sense. He rips the roof off of the van, and then rather than reaching in, he then just goes around the side and just tries to rip off the, the panel. Yeah, yeah. So hey, what? Why not? I guess. But yeah, it's it's a funny scene because um, <laughs> as I don't know how well these things age, but um. Uh, after Jaws fights with Bond and and Bond tricks Jaws into collapsing a building on himself through his own physical strength he puts a quip about oh Egyptian builders and yeah. then he quips about women drivers when yeah. Barbara Bach is trying to drive away but of course Bach success, it turns out she knows what she's doing and runs over Jaws and then escapes in the much beaten up thing and apparently reportedly the Egyptian builders line actually got a huge laugh in Egypt so who, who am I to say what's uh, what works out but it kind of 
sets up that Bond is very cool. He's he's you know he he knows best, and then it turns out oh maybe maybe he doesn't actually know best, or at least he's found someone else who also knows best when when need be. So kind of yeah, it sets up that interesting dynamic that really which actually is it's interesting. Because you mentioned later on, they they have their meetings with their with M and with AGO with whatever General Gogol. There is this weird element to that where where Bond and Triple X are like one upping each other with quote you know with trivia and with this and that that they've they've identified. Yeah, and it's it, they they have this strange feeling that they're both just like school kids trying to impress you know their boss. And it's strange that it, it's almost like a weirdly uh, infantilizing element of these supposedly super agents boys i don't think we could draw major conclusions from that but it is sort of strange that these are like the best of the best and they just look kind of like needy kids who are like looking for affection (laughs) but uh a weird a weird little takeaway from that scene i felt it was like it's kind of funny within the context of the film but it's also sort of strange if these are like functioning adults doing their job but yeah so be it uh, yeah, he's just, I mean, that's also Roger Moore. He's just a big kid at heart. He's, he's, in, a, he's in a playground, he's in a sandbox, he's having the time of his life. Um, yeah, and then what they, they're after this microfilm that uh, Jaws had acquired um, from the guy he killed, and uh, Bond already analyzed it, but Agent Triple X takes it after knocking him out with uh, her um, knockout cigarettes. Uh, yes, and, as yeah, you have, you know. exactly. You know, standard Asian equipment. Although I should, before we get there, their van breaks down in the middle of the desert, and they have to walk to their next destination. And while they do that, the Lawrence of Arabia theme starts playing, which feels like a very, very odd lift because that came out, I think, in I want to say 1968 or no, 1960 even. And uh, yeah, yeah it was... it, 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 like 18 years or 15, 17 years later, here they are playing the theme song. It's like, hey, remember this? This is a reference well, we can do. Yeah, I, I suppose. I guess the Lawrence of Arabia theme tune was pretty iconic, so they could they could get away with it. Uh, like that one, that one lives in the memory, so, so they could do it. But it does. Um, I think that one does signal again to a kind of a departure within this film, uh, which is the music, the, the score generally, which, as you mentioned, got an Oscar nomination. Which right. uh, the the Bond films are not always getting Oscar nominated, so this is not a, a small small thing. But um, John Barry didn't do the music for this because tax reasons. Basically, I think he was a tax exile at the time or having some issues, so he couldn't work in England. So uh, it was handed over to Marvin Hamlish yeah. to do the music, and he he I think he does a really great job. There's some really interesting little variations here, and part of it is. The the as this is to my memory, and maybe I'm mis- I'm forgetting some things, but this is it's not typical to have this audio cue, you know, lifted a kind of a, a metatextual reference like that, like the Lawrence of Arabia theme tune kicking in. But um, yeah, it kind of adds it to the levity. It gives it gives a, a kind of again fits in with the tone of the film, and it also kind of puts more of a kind of a disco inflection on some of the themes, which kind of modernizes them a little bit and brings it up to date. I think it's a really I think he does a really good job with the music on this film. And I think it does, it's, this film sounds very different, I think, than the ones that went before it. It kind of, you know, a new, new coat of paint, which, which yeah. is never a bad idea. It's very much a flavoring of the era that we're in. I mean, you can only return to Monty Hall's theme so much, but yeah, it does add a, it adds a new and different spin on, on the, the Bond theme. I may, I may not be as big a fan as the actual music as uh, you might be, but I, yeah, a little variation is always nice to hear. Um, uh, yeah, let's see. So, um, anyways, Bond and Triple X are now working together. Uh, they board a train where Jaws has smuggled himself onto their train compartment, which, again, as you mentioned, he's over seven feet tall. He's not really a hard person to miss, but yet he still managed to sneak aboard and hide in Anya's closet. Yeah, uh, yes, that's right. He hides. he hides in the closet at the tiny thing, which is a straight... He is apparently really good at this because he will. he's just a master of hiding in small spaces that shouldn't fit Jaws. Yeah, that's right. Um, but so it goes... And as we know, if you're getting on a train, nothing goes right for James Bond when he's on a train. Oh, no. <laughs> We've had so many, so many train fights at this point. Trains and boats, I guess, are, you know... Never safe, but yeah, has he has his fight, and this I think is actually a good point where we think of because the train fight, the ultimate Bond train fight, surely is from Russia with Love, right. uh, his his tussle with Red Grant with Sean Connery fighting, which is certainly I think one of the action high points of the franchise as a whole, and a really solid uh, 
brawl it's, by yeah. any measure. It's it's a, that's you know the early films really sort of uh, there's a lot of elements that establish precedent for what the Bond film would go on to use over and over again. Like we mentioned, yeah. this film opens up with a ski sequence that had been I don't think since On Her Majesty's Secret Service have we seen Bond in the snow. So like every four films or so, there is always a snow sequence. Then some every time he gets on a train, he usually has a fight with somebody on board the train. Um, so yeah, it's definitely one of the recurring elements in the in the series. There's there's only so many modes of transport, I suppose. But yeah. the, but what I say is that this um, if we talk about say the the fight in From Russia with Love is being a really great physical brawl. The fight with Jaws and Roger Moore is a very kind of clumsy, honestly. And I think it, it comes to the fore when we talk about Roger Moore. He's not a physical fighter he doesn't have that presence that sean connery has and it's not so much of a problem honestly because there's more of a a certain kind of looseness and lightness to these films that they they're they're not presenting themselves as you know action films they're they've they're something different they're adventure films they have grandiose set pieces i mean we're up against maniacal overlords who live under the sea at this (laughs) point so we've kind of moved away from you know anything anything resembling normal geopolitical uh, tussles and power games. So it's a much clumsier fight, and um, it certainly doesn't have the sharpness of, of some of the, the, the Sean Connery action sequences, but it kind of works, because, and, and it kind of works, and I think it, it, the, way, the fact that it does work does suggest, again, that we're having... Roger Moore has really hit his groove now that this film, the the Spy You Love Me, really has set in motion right. something that works because some of the, some of the fights in Live and Let Die and the uh, the Man with the Golden Gun were also not great, but they were also in films that weren't great that didn't they didn't support they didn't pull the right strings to lift it up so they stood out more. Whereas here, honestly, I don't I don't mind at all. I don't know if you were what what your feelings are on this fight if you think it's egregiously close because it's pretty. Pretty loose uh, choreography-wise. I mean, you kind of have to make peace with the fact that Roger Moore is not the most convincing fighter of all the Bonds. Um, in fact, uh, the you know he's arguably the worst fighter if you if you stack them all against each other. Because um, at least at least Lazenby looked like he could you know believe in a that he was an ever oh, incredible tussle. Was a slugger. Yeah, he could <laughs> he could knock you out. But yeah, you know Moore's Bond. He's not really he's not really the fighter Bond. But yeah, you kind of have to just kind of go with the film and uh, ultimately the 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 train fight. I I don't really mind that much. I think. I think what's even more bizarre than Bond's fighting style is that he tries to hit Jaws with a headboard, and then Jaws, like, deflects it, and then he picks it up, and just to show off how strong he is, he bites into it, just to show Bond, look what I can do, um, before Bond, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we we have these many, many issues, and I can't remember, Triple X doesn't even get in on this, this fight, he, she gets dispatched, or incapacitated early, right, so, so it's just Bond versus Jaws. Yeah, she's, she's knocked out and thrown into the other compartment, but yeah, it's more about, uh, Roger Moore using his wits to, uh, to to, to defeat Jaws, and he, um, so yeah, he smashes the lamp, and with the loose electrical wirings, zaps his teeth with it before throwing him out the window. So yeah, it's, don't try. Yeah. Which, which I enjoy because it's the concept that his his uh, metal his metal teeth make that worse. But honestly, I'm pretty sure if you stick a live wire in anyone's mouth, uh, probably can have similar results. But anyhow, very true. Uh, we'll, we'll work with what we're given. <laughs> yeah. So um, they get to uh, they get to I don't know where they are. I think they're like in the Mediterranean. They have to go to Sardinia um, next. Sardinia, that's right. Uh, yeah, so it's Italy, because yeah, they they because why not? Firstly, yeah. Well, they <laughs> go off. Else. They go offshore to meet uh, with um, Stromberg on his island, just to just so that he can assure them he's not up to any villainous stuff. But uh, you know, they are, they surmise that oh, indeed, he is the villain of the picture. Um, this leads to Bond acquiring his new vehicle, which is not an Aston Martin; it's a Lotus Esprit. Uh, complete with underwater submarine functionality. Um, and uh, after they leave Stromborg's space, they get into a chase scene featuring Jaws, some other cars, and uh, also Stromberg's henchwoman in a helicopter. Um, yes. Now, as much as the, uh, as the fight scene may not have worked, I think this sequence is very well done. 
This is a great chase, and yeah, we and uh, I just want to will highlight uh, Naomi, his his the, Naomi. the Bond girl, who is played by Carolyn Monroe. Right. Um. I if I have any complaint about this film, it's they just don't. I I wanted more Naomi. I think she's a great villainous, like the villain Bond girl. And I don't know if part of it is Carolyn Monroe. Obviously, she was a model originally, and she moved into acting and uh, starred in several kind of films I guess probably one of her biggest films prior to this was um Cameron was the Golden Voyage of Sinbad one of one of Harry Howes Sinbad films but anyway um right troweling on the sex appeal um which is it would be difficult to hide it when you have Carolyn Monroe on the screen but anyway she's in this film she doesn't really have to do a lot she's just the sexy evil lady but I feel like they asked her to just vamp it up or maybe they did or maybe they didn't tell her what to do at all and she wasn't sure so I feel like she's like she's playing to the gods like to the back seat of the theater she has got this really like swaying crazy like sexiness uh, kind of like put on it's so over the top and then she's a murderous helicopter pilot and it just it, and there's also a tension between her and Agent Triple X right because uh, for, for I don't know why they'd really care about James Bond but they obviously that's what's you know foreground in these films because they have to but I really I think the scenes with her are great and then she um, almost immediately gets killed in this chase where yeah. Bond torpe- like, torpedoes her out of the sky with a uh, surface to air missile <laughs> fired from a Lotus car that's which is underwater yeah 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 it's a, the most ridiculous uh, thing but why, why not but yeah I, I must say I must I, I think it's a great chase scene you're right and we have the Lotus has a couple of it has uh, oil sprayer thing on uh, overground and then when it goes underground it also has another oil cannon and it's torpedoes and drops mines and they can shoot missiles into the sky to kill helicopters it's a very remarkable machine but I, amidst all of this I'm just oh, I, I just wish Naomi was in the film for longer I just think she's a really really fun character for yeah. whatever amount of time she's in there but I then obviously I was just gonna yeah. say she's kind of like the Fiona Volpe of Thunderball. She's she she a, is a very similar, very very similar, uh, and kind of quiet and sort of just gets down to business. I don't know, it, like I just feel she's underused a little bit. But I don't know, maybe maybe if they'd used more of her, the the magic would have worn off. But uh, as all good things must come to an end, the Lotus Esprit must uh, surface from the water and drive up on on land again, uh, leading to probably one of the broadest comic elements of the film thus far um with a bunch of beachgoers tracking the the vehicle and we have of course the start of a repeating gag here we have one character who's drinking a bottle of wine on the beach and looks agape at this car that drives up on shore and he he looks at his bottle of wine as if to say this must be some kind of a drink induced hallucination and of course he would show up in the next film um in, in an even honestly and even is it more outlandish i don't know the hovercraft gondola of it's the, uh, very possible e- equally outlandish but anyway a very this is again the sort of thing that is uh it's just sort of an absurd detail but hey why not um and then i don't believe he uses the uh the the car anymore they trick out all of the gadgets and use them very quick succession for one sequence and then we're we're done and we're back on shore again yeah i think we even uh skipped over the q lab sequence where we just see all these other uh gadgets that don't uh get used in the film but it's kind of like we just sort of see what Q's working on on the side like there's a, a levitating uh, tea tray that'll cut your head off when you send it down like, how, guided how rails. The, i can only imagine the uh the specific scenario where that becomes useful yeah and then, uh, yeah, and then there's also, like, just another a, a, a spring-loaded seed that can launch somebody into the air. Um, I think there's a third one that I'm not uh, recalling, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, Q's yeah, I'm trying to remember what it was. I'm sure it was incredibly useful. Oh, actually, you know what? I, I want to hark back, speaking of gadgets, because I will, I will say, um, oh, it's a hookah gun that they right. have. It's, it's a hookah pipe that shoots bullets, because, of course. That's not racist. No, not just perfect, perfectly useful thing. But I do want to hark back because I will say near the very beginning of the film, we have what I'm going to posit as perhaps the dumbest 007 invention yet. 
uh, or the most useless, which is James Bond's watch with a label maker, uh, which oh notifies him of something. And it's literally just like, <laughs> we, we've all had those label makers from the 70s or whatever. And then you press on the, you set it, you turn the dial to the letter and pull the trigger and it like imprints the letter onto the label and moves it on one and you just, you print your labels. And it's basically one of those, but it's like a message that pops out of the top of a of the watch, like a printer on that label, on that plasticky label. I cannot imagine that how useful that would be. It's just such a stupid, what, <laughs> what dumb is, throwaway thing. What's really crazy about that is that, because I noticed that too, that watch that that, mes- that ticker tape message is coming out of, it's a digital watch. Why wouldn't you just have the digital watch read the message and then go back to being a watch instead of having to <laughs> load it with uh, a tape in case they needed to get to yeah. 007 via via wristwatch how much, uh, how much tape can it, How much tape can it hold? Like, how many messages can, like... A, do they have a character limit? It's like the early days of SMS messaging. Yeah. Um, they got to tap it in like, oh no, he's only got like two inches of tape. But anyway, I just wanted to highlight that as possibly the daftest, as daft as anything in the Q lab actually is. Like it's, it's, that's your, your showcase for silly throwaway gags basically. But the watch is out on the field and it's just an absurd, like it, lo- it looks, I'm, I feel like it looks dated in uh, whatever 1977 I don't think anyone anyone watched the movie was like oh man I wish I could have the watch that prints labels (laughs) so oh well but anyhow so yeah we we get back to Q giving uh, giving Bond the one over and they have to go on their I think are they off to their final adventure at this point to visit the city of Atlantis which is Stromberg's floating floating lair yeah, eventually they, they all points lead back to uh, um, Stromberg, who's kind of like a, a Blofeld analog. Um, there is a there is a, a minor confrontation that Triple X has with Bond, um, where she discovers that her lover was the one that was killed by Bond, and so oh, she yes. sort of has this contempt towards him. That she says she's going to kill him once once the mission is over. Exactly. But anyways, onward and upward, they go to the final mission where they try to infiltrate as dressed as uh, sailor soldiers, um, but uh, they get captured. And uh, in this gargantuan set piece, uh, Bond manages to free the submarine prisoners that were captured in the opening scene, and then it leads to this giant shootout between the men in Stromberg's lair versus all of the sailors on board from the submarine. And it's really a, a also like one of the remarkable set pieces of the of the film because um, Stanley Kubrick was brought in to light most of the sequence, just so long as he wanted to go uncredited. But the cinematographer, he was slowly but surely losing his eyesight and he couldn't really do the sequence that well so Kubrick was actually brought in to light much of this entire sequence which is one of the largest uh, sets built for uh, UK production at the time um, but yeah, what do you what do you think? Of, but we're, we're back to like the you only live twice, where Bond frees the astronauts, and it leads to this this sort of ninja battle versus battle. Yeah. Except now it's with sailors. Yes, the overlap here is significant. Uh, it's actually I just want to mention just before that because Kubrick did come in to do this, and the the main cinematographer is Claude Claude Renoir, who was actually Jean Renoir's nephew, I believe. Right. Um, and is a superb. Like he's worked on some huge films like obviously very very gifted cinematographer didn't exactly need help but his eyesight was failing and this was just too big a task so why not turn to Stanley Kubrick a man who knows a thing or two about lighting and everything else so yeah just kind of an interesting uh, addition and um, but yeah this this set piece is it's really it's a very solid set piece and it's very big and you were correct uh, as Lewis Gilbert I feel like he has a type very much for the like he's directed did he direct three James Bond films he directed like, yeah, three of them and they're so, all so pretty be, much the same they are all yeah the the plot and action beats are all very similar but they're also all really good honestly so um again well, can't, spectacle can't, yeah yeah, can't complain too much. Yeah, it's 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 a weird setup here because we say um, Stromberg has only stolen these these submarines to launch nuclear missiles to basically eradicate life on Earth, but he keeps the crews of the submarines around, <laughs> and, and, which I don't really understand the benefit of that of keeping them there. So there's basically a a, a full Trojan horse brig full of people who hate his guts. 
uh, waiting to be released to fight against his own men. Yeah, uh, sort of, sort of a strange thing. But it, it all works, and we have much. The body count here is, I'm sure, staggering. I didn't even try and keep count as grenades thrown and explosions oh and God. people flying everywhere. Yeah, and you know, I, my, one of my favorite details about this is that they need to get up to where these shuttle shutter doors are, which is where like the controls of the ship are, and. Um, the the captain of the submarine that was stolen is saying, "All right, we need we need a volunteer to go investigate." And this young up and coming sailor is like, "I'll do it." And then he leads this charge to go up the stairs, but is immediately gunned down. Just just kind of funny that he's like he's the dispensable extra who has to show you that oh you can't really get past there because you'll get shot to death. So that's it. Our brave queen and country yeah. fella marching towards the machine guns. Yeah. It's uh, perfect for remembering British bravery in the military field. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a well worked set piece. Um, I don't know, uh, and yeah, it, it's what well, it was also another thing that I just I can't I, I kind of love the way to do this in this movie because why not? That literally, I think this is the first uh, major villain in a James Bond movie has a corporate branded evil lair or mega like he literally has his own company, he has his logo with a fish that Stromberg yeah. sticks on his own lair they, as he's yeah. planning to eradicate humanity. I'm like, oh that is I could absolutely see Jeff Bezos or someone doing that <laughs> later on, like an Amazon branded bunker where he directs the destruction of the whole world. They even commented on it earlier in the film, uh when they discover and the microfilm is captured on top of documents that have that logo on it, they discover, oh this logo Logo belongs to Carl Stromberg and Triple X says Carl Stromberg, but he's one of the mo- richest men in the world, which becomes just a theme <laughs> of Bond eradicating billionaires who want to destroy the world for their own purpose. You um, can't trust them. Yeah, but, uh, these these capitalists are not like good people serving the queen indeed uh, i i kind of love that scene too because q has the microfilm and he's going i like i we've analyzed the paper and the typeset and we know it's from italy and then bond just happens to take one look and is like oh zoom in on this bit at the edge and they zoom in it's like oh it's a logo for carl stromberg or whatever we <laughs> yeah. know exactly where, and it's well done like q's gonna miss that the dude who can make a hookah gone come on we know he's he's equal to this task <laughs> indeed um, yeah, well, uh, anyways, yeah, so Bond eventually breaks through the shutter doors uh, through an extended sequence where he takes out the explosive core of one of the nuclear bombs and places it up against um, the uh, the door before hightailing it out of there. And it's actually also, like, a very good suspense sequence because he, um, uh, like, there's no music playing at all. It's just sort of, like, Bond meticulously working through um, defusing a nuclear bomb so that it can, uh, so that he can use the explosive cord to get through the other side and kind of commandeer where the submarines are going to fire. Um, and then once he breaks through, they order both. There's two submarines on either side of the Pacific Ocean, which are to launch nuclear weapons uh, at the world and eradicate life on Earth as we know it, so that the underwater city can flourish. So Bond, what he does is he reprograms the nuclear submarines to fire the nuclear missiles at each other. Now, there's two funny things about this. The first is that we get to see the 2D map of the missiles flying in the air, and there's a small moment where it looks like the missiles might actually collide with each other in midair, but the sky is such a large place that the probability of that happening is virtually non-existent. And then (laughs) second... Uh, Bond detonates two nuclear bombs in the Pacific Ocean. Wouldn't the, most of the world become uninhabitable by that point? Like fish would well, die. Uh, in the it's it's fine. I mean, uh, we they've done atomic testing in the Pacific before, and it's yes. probably only had some degree of fallout for humanity. Um, I mean, they detonated nuclear bombs in the deserts in Arizona and Nevada. What you know? I True. mean, sure, a lot of people died of cancer, but that's fine because weapons are very important. Um, yeah, I thought that was pretty good too. That that James Bond, as part of his plan, just do you say just detonates two nuclear bombs, and we don't know where these submarines are or how far out from civilization they are. Yeah. It seems like, and and they use a bunch of stock footage of nuclear bombs exploding, yeah, to really hammer home the ginormousness of this task. I also appreciate the fact that it's like. They're on the fly, just able to reprogram these missiles to hit two submarine, like tiny. I'm not even sure what today's targeting 
with satellites that you would be able to just hit a submarine in the middle of the ocean with pinpoint accuracy. I suppose right. if you're using a nuke, you don't have to be that accurate. Uh, maybe maybe that's the get-out clause there. But yeah, it's it's, a, it's a, something of a, an incredible uh, concept. I do like it because it is sort of... It, it furthers one of my favorite tropes in, in uh, James Bond movies, which is a concept that everything can be tracked on camera and everything or like you know or, or to some degree you know this so they track the missiles they have visual representations of the missiles earlier right. on in the film when the submarines are stolen they have like a big map and they have a lines drawn on it to indicate where the where the the submarines went and even prior to that for in the introduction to Stromberg there's this fantastic uh, scene where he the two guys who developed the submarine tracking system uh, leave they fly out in yes. a helicopter and, and like, Stromberg immediately hits a button and a camera comes on tracking the helicopter with sound always and it's like how and it, you know just and actually honestly it's just like they only live, it, uh, you only live twice again yeah. which may really was the great film of this trope of just there's cameras on everything at all times somehow just tracking flying objects like it's not easy to just track a flying helicopter that requires some degree of a uh, a forethought yeah. and, and stuff and no that's fine he's just got a button on his table that does it uh, so I really enjoy that as a Bond trope the idea that at any given time you can just do that meanwhile I mean he's built an entire base and stolen submarines and stuff underwater and no one noticed but apparently yeah. I guess everyone else doesn't have enough cameras but he's got all the cameras what I yeah what I love about that helicopter explosion is that um, during that sequence we also discover that uh uh, Stromberg, I keep almost wanting to call him Blofeld, but Stromberg has a trap door in his elevator, which leads to a shark tank. And he has this yes. female assistant that he uses that on early on because we, he discovers that she's the one who leaked the microfilm to the uh, the British Secret Service, which is what kicks off Bond's mission. Um, and then after that, the doctor and the scientist go to depart, and Stromberg says, you may use the elevator, and they cautiously get into it, but they get safely back up to the surface. Then, when they're in the elevator flying away, they're, like, smiling and laughing and shaking each other's hands, and then Stromberg just blows up the helicopter to dispatch them. Oh, yeah, it's, I suppose it's, it's, it's fair, because the shark was surely full, so he couldn't uh, just drop them in there. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this shark can only eat so much. In yeah. one day, so that, yeah, yeah, I mean, it makes fair. good sense. He could have had multiple sharks, I guess, but whatever. He just, you know, he's a man of means. You know, one is enough. Yeah, but um, yeah. So, so we have we have our grand, uh, our our grand explosion uh, thing. We get Bond gets in, sets off the nuclear bombs, and we have, I think, one of my favorite elements of this. Another just crazy element where Stromberg escapes by shooting a speedboat out in like a little capsule so it just gets shot out of the side of the Atlantis I like and, that uh, yeah. and That'll... the capsule pops apart to reveal the speedboat and it lands and it's all done in miniature I love and that miniature kind of close up so the miniature has like little model people in it and it literally it just really looks like a Thunderbirds episode to me like these little <laughs> puppets um, it's a very odd and like the shot just lingers just too long on it that you're really aware there are little figurines in the yeah. speedboat but and also physically I'm pretty sure that would kill everyone on board <laughs> I don't I'm not sure that would work so well um, but so be it Stromberg Stromberg knows best yeah, and he. This is like one of the minor complaints I have about Triple X is that even though she's pretty much set up as Bond's equal, she becomes a damsel in distress by the end of the film because she's tied yes. up to a chair in, in Stromberg's lair. Um, but and no, Stromberg dresses her for the occasion in that really yeah. creepy way that these guys keep doing it, which yeah. Uh, weird in her pseudo futuristic clothing, as Austin Powers would put it, or. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, strange one, but so be it. Yeah. Anyways, uh, luckily Bond uh, constructs the first jet ski with the help of Q Branch, and he gets to go to um, Stromberg's lair. There, he sneaks aboard and then deals with Stromberg by outwitting him on his uh, elevator. Uh, Bond's smart enough to just keep both feet planted to the sides so that he doesn't fall the trap door. Then uh, he sits at the dinner table across from Stromberg, and we re reveal that Stromberg has, like, this long tube that he can shoot a missile through underneath his dinner table. Uh, luckily, Bond shoot or dodges that, and then he gets to take his turn by firing into the tube back into Stromberg. And I think in one of the more vicious 
Roger Moore kills, he walks up and shoots Stromberg in the chest four times. Now, yeah, this is brutal by any measure. Yeah, usually, uh, you know, a Bond villain often gets their comeuppance uh, with uh, their chest desserts, and it's usually with like a, a device of their own. They get they get hoisted by their own petard, if you will. They get something that they create often gets turned against them, or they get this very uh, you know grandiloquent set piece that kills them off. But yeah, Roger Moore just slowly pacing himself towards this guy, old man, and just shooting him in the chest. I think that feels more vicious than anything he's done up to this point. Definitely. And and I mean, honestly, beyond with the tube, I'm pretty sure he shoots him in the dick twice. Right. Which is a pretty, pretty mean start. But then again, this is a man who's planning to repopulate the earth. So there, there's a strange, yeah, kind of viciousness to it, which, yeah, it, it's strange. It doesn't stand out too much, but it, it's sort of like... Knowing what we know and overall, it is it's kind of strange, but it it's satisfying in the film. It it kind of because it's very blunt, um, and I yeah. think it works well within the the grander action sequence. Because as much as uh, the the films are uh, prone to flights of fancy and stuff, and their gadgetry and stuff, this is as I I took the note while the film was happening. Just the finale is very explodey because um, that's pretty much the finale it's very much practical stunts explosions missiles right, right. and then just ends with that just that shooting um yeah it's a kind of well-blooded action film for this section um and i, I guess more holes his end of the bargain up well enough for it he's been established well enough throughout the rest of the film that it's not too egregious it doesn't feel out of character mm-hmm yeah and then we have our final oddly we have our final showdown after our main villain has been dispatched already where where jaws comes back the indestructible jaws yeah it's exactly jaws uh comes back um he's fighting bond over this uh over the shark pit what i love about this is that bond commandeers a giant magnet and one of my favorite little roger moore touches is that he goads jaws into smiling to expose his teeth so that he can pick him up with the magnet and then drop him into the water with the shark. Uh, unfortunately, Jaws turns out to be a formidable opponent against a shark, even when it's in its own natural habitat and manages to bite the shark to death, which is yeah, I, certainly a precursor to a little chill Fucci film, if you ask me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this sets the stage. I kind of hadn't even considered that. I always feel the zombie versus shark uh, fight in Zombie, which is one of the most insane action sequences I've ever seen in terms of the plotting to put it together that I didn't realize two years prior really uh, we, we'd already seen it here with Jaws yeah. I feel this feels like a miscalculation for Bond because I mean he knows that Jaws is practically indestructible why not just leave him hanging by the teeth that's a horrible oh, yeah. fate but no he, dro- but he drops him with a shark and honestly he just he does that shark a disservice because that shark gets killed poor guy he hasn't done anything wrong but yes, uh, and then we have, of course, Jaws defeats the shark and he escapes, which sets us up that Jaws, of course, will return in in the next film, right? Uh, in Moonraker, because he was much beloved by fans. Indeed, he was. Yeah, luckily, uh, Mon manages to rescue Triple uh, X. They get out in this little orb sub thing and uh, float back to the surface, and they port. Um, and this is a, also a common thread is that Bond is having sex with the, the Bond girl on water as they drift away from an exploding uh, base. Um, always. I always count how many films that has happened. And yeah, this is also another recurring thing is that Bond is seen having sex with the final girl by his supervisors. And He's a weird voyeur, that guy. And he, there's something yeah. crazy. Like, this is a hostile work environment. I'm surprised <laughs> Moneypenny hasn't sued years and years ago for nope. the weird belligerent nuts, like, stuff that she has to put up with. But, um, yeah, you talk about, like, Triple X being maybe a little bit undercut by becoming the damsel in distress. And I feel we also have a little bit of a... Uh, maybe an easy way out here at the end where she takes Bond as relaxed and feels everything's done and he puts his gun down and Triple X picks the gun up and reminds him that she killed he killed her former lover and now it's her turn turn to exact revenge as she promised. The mission right. is over, so now they're they're no longer uh, comrades, they're now they're now adversaries again and she's seeking to to revenge him. 
And uh, then and then he just sort of smiles, and she is, of course, taken by his charm and puts it down, and then well, they immediately... The, he's holding the champagne bottle, and the cork pops, and that, like, diffuses all tension, and she's like, yeah, yes. you know, I kind of like you. Yeah, yeah, but it's, it's, it's like, it's... Yeah, one of those kind of sequences, and it, I don't know, it, I guess, as ever, we just have to buy into uh, James Bond's magnetic chemistry, yeah. uh, just as the given. But yeah, it's it's sort of like I feel maybe Triple X could be something a little more, but so, so be it. I think she quits herself pretty well, as you say, throughout the, the yeah. general run of the film before it becomes the James Bond show in the finale. Yeah, well, I apologize if you hear some noise right now. It's my fiance coming home, but uh, yeah, I think Triple X is really well realized, and um, yeah, that's uh, that about does it for the Spy Who Loved Me. Um, you want to run through some numbers? Absolutely, we've got some good numbers on this one. So we set a new record for body count. Finally, Thunderball, and interesting. This is another the, the the last most aquatic. James Bond film had a record body count of 21 okay. uh, people killed. We beat that by one. Uh, the Spy wow. You Love Me is 22, the highest body count yet. And, so, uh, and that, these Thunderball. are just people that Bond killed, right? Because it's yeah, certainly just, a lot more this, in the finale. Oh, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm not counting all the general. May. Yeah, there's a lot of death in this one, to be honest with you, considering how light it is as a, as a film, how light and breezy it often is. Yeah, there's an incredible amount of carnage on display. But Bond himself kills 22 people. Which is a new record and brings our running franchise total to 108 people senselessly murdered uh, for the purpose of, of the, whatever, the purpose of the safety of the world. And uh, Roger Moore, who up until this point was not a, a major player, he only killed one person in the previous film, yeah. Man with the Golden Gun, only killed Scaramanga, so they felt obviously you need to address this and then some. So he kills 22 people and brings his total to 20, 32 in total. Uh, more than doubling uh, what he previously his previous body count. So yeah, very very impressive showing on that front. Uh, in terms of as we track the age differences, because we felt that would be a funny thing to do, uh, and the amount of women he sleeps with, uh, we have what's honestly I think has become kind of the standard three. That seems to be the average for for James Bond films now. Three different women. Sure. Um, and that brings the run total to 26 sexual partners that uh, James Bond has had. Wow. So good for, good for him, I guess. It's going to be a trip to the clinic at some point. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the most we have here is, um, I could, honestly, two of the women I actually couldn't find. The, the actresses, uh, well, Sue Vanner plays the, the pre-credits girl, but I don't know when she, I don't know what age she was. Yeah. And of the uh, Arab beauties he beds, I don't, I don't know what her age was either. So, um, basically, Barbara Bach was 20 years younger than Roger Moore, who, again, I want to wow. remind everyone, is 50 years old in this film, playing a, playing an action superhero. Um, 20 years does not beat the 24 years. I've actually corrected that. I think I really stated it was 23 years of an age difference between Roger Moore and Jane Seymour in Live and Let Die. I think it's actually, I'm going by whole years. I'm not really calculating birth dates. I know that might be a little bit off depending on when people are born. Yeah. So I've gone with tw- whole years, 24 years which is a uh, pretty gross, honestly. But that's what we have uh, from Live and Let Die. That record remains un- unbeaten but honestly, Roger Moore's only getting older as these movies go on and the women aren't so we'll we'll see how that works out by the time we get up to like a view to a kill, etc. Um, it'll be a good time, but those those are our numbers thus far. So, how do you have box office figures on this one, Jake? I, I sure do. So, Spy Who Loved Me uh, had a budget of fourteen million dollars, which is roughly equivalent to fifty eight million today. Um, it grossed forty six million in the U.S., which is one hundred ninety five million adjusted for today. Not bad by any means. And then it grossed one hundred eighty five million worldwide, which is equivalent to seven hundred seventy two million dollars if you adjust for inflation today. So, yeah, James Bond quickly recovered after the lull that was the man with the golden gun, and he's uh, he's back and better than ever, baby. Heck yeah, and I, and I would agree. This 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 movie deserves deserves audiences. Uh, I got no problems with this one making bank at the box office. Yeah, well, I guess we should about wrap it up. Um, any uh, any last words on the spy who loved me? Uh, not really. Other than that, it's uh, they'll return with Vin Diesel several years <laughs> yeah, later. <laughs> that's true. The spiritual sequel to the James Bond film Triple X and his franchise. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyways, well, this has been For Your Ears Only. Um, I'm Jake Tropila. You can reach me at Jake Tropila on Twitter. Uh, Jack, where can the good people find you? I uh, can also be found on Twitter at Real Jack Eason. So you can uh, send comments and critiques my way. Sounds good. Yeah, and you can also reach out to us in general at Optimism Vaccine on Twitter or at Optimism Vaccine at gmail.com. Uh, until next time, uh, for your ears only, we'll return with Moonraker. Moonraker.